0: Welcome back to the Curdverse. I'm Lisa Kaywood, corporate functionary by day, home cheesemaker by night. In the last episode on stretched curd cheeses, and in episode 16 on fresh cheeses, I began diving into Asian forms of cheesemaking. Cheese and dairying began, as best as we can tell, in center West Asia in the late Neolithic era and spread east as readily as it did west. But Asian forms of cheesemaking are quite different from the damp-aged versions of cheese we know from Europe, for reasons of climate, topography, lifestyle, and also religion. Animal rennet traditionally is not used in most of Asia. More often than not, the milk is heated to pasteurization temperatures in the course of making the cheese, and all indications are that this has been true for thousands of years. Often the milk is quickly acidified with added acids such as lemon juice rather than slowly fermented. The role that dairy plays in the cultures and cuisines of Asia also tends to be quite different from those of Europe. Today, we get to hear about the cheese and dairy products in pre-modern China in this special interview with Dr. Miranda Brown. Dairying has a very long history in China, and in fact some of the oldest actual pieces of cheese we found anywhere in the world, some 3,600 years old, comes from the desert region of the Tarim Basin in what is now northwest China. In this interview, Dr. Brown tells us mostly about the historical periods of Chinese history from the Han Dynasty onwards. For those not familiar with Chinese dynasties, there's a timeline in the show notes, as well as links to Dr. Brown's food research. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you. Um, so, Miranda, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background? Um, I believe you're a professor of Chinese history at University of Michigan, uh, but you focus mostly on food history. Tell us a little bit about how you got there. Um,
1: it's, it's, you know, in a circuitous route. So I, I'm actually trained as a classical historian. I'm, I'm in the Department of Asian Languages and Cultures and... I got interested in sort of the history of dairy in China because I found a reference to it in a 2,000-year-old medical text um, for camel butter, and I thought, you know, what is that? And, you know, can you make butter from camel milk? And what is it doing in in a Chinese context? Because I was under the impression that, you know, Chinese, at least historically, didn't do dairy. Um, You know, my mother, who was Chinese herself, actually used to. Uh, talk about like you know the world of like the Chinese um tofu and on the one hand and then you have like the west which are full of butter eaters and so by implication that sort of suggested that there was no butter in China um so that that's kind of my that was one of my ends um I also teach a class um on the history of food and drink in Asia um it's something that i become very interested in especially you know after I had my seven-year-old um so this is sort of a more recent interest of mine, and I've you know sort of been interested in all aspects of Chinese food history.
0: Cool. So let's start with that camel butter, two thousand year old camel butter. Where was the text from? You said it was a medical text. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm assuming that this the these camels were probably somewhere in the northwest, is it, or was it kind of were they more widespread than that?
1: Uh, camels were, you know. all through the north I mean you know we have footage from the turn of the century with camels moving through Beijing so um, but you know so even recent re- relatively recently there were camels you know where we now would have you know enormous apartment blocks and, and sort of BMWs um, but this particular text was in Gansu in the northwest um, it's in the site called Zhuyen. Um sorry it was a site called Wu Wei um, and it's a small city now ish, small in the Chinese context, it's not small in any other context. <laughs> but it was a, sort of a recipe for dealing with um, wounds on your backside from riding horses. So you mix up some camel butter, um, probably Bactrian camel milk, which is richer than most camel milk. Um, and then you turn it into a paste and add Sichuan peppercorns and that should take the, the ouch out of things.
0: I don't know if you've got a raw wound and you're putting peppercorns on it. That doesn't sound very comfortable. It's
1: numbing. <laughs> it's numbing. So numbing and soothing. I guess I, I, I'm assuming those two work against. You know, work in a complementary fashion.
0: So, um, so are most of the the texts then? Uh, most of the early references are they medical or are they are there kind of food food things kind of mixed in there?
1: Definitely food things. I mean, we know people are drinking horse milk at court, um, that there's a bureau that's involved at least from about 130 BC. Um, The emperor has somebody who's in charge of producing fermented horse milk um, with a little bit of a buzz for him and sort of the big officials at court. And it it becomes sort of fashionable with the ruling and mercantile elites um, in the first century um, BC, which is of course the heyday of the Silk Road or the early heyday of the Silk Road. Um, and then, you know, there are just references to other sort of kinds of dairy products. A little, they trickle in, um, in sort of sources. And we have gorgeous representations of people trying to milk all sorts of animals, horses, um, sheep, donkeys, cows, and then drinking the milk, more or less straight from the udder or, um, after it's been put into a cup, um. And that, those depictions date to about 150 AD. Um, the picture is great because it shows a sort of a man getting kicked as he's trying to milk a hot horse. <laughs> it's, you know, it's a highly dangerous thing to do. You know, I wouldn't recommend trying it. At least
0: not if you're not very familiar with the horse, yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, when, when do you start seeing things like curds and what we might think of as cheese?
1: There's a tricky question, I mean there are descriptions in, in like a first century poem about um Han soldiers finding the sort of the Mongol, the Mongolian stash, yeah you know, these are not exactly Mongols but they're Mongolian peoples um in sort of today's Inner Mongolia um they find their stash of like dried yogurt which is kind of sometimes referred to as a cheese and then burning it um but that is something that that dried yogurt cheese becomes something, I think, quite common in the diet, in the, the at least by the 6th century, you know, in North China. Places like Shandu, um people are using excess, you know, surplus milk to make curd that they can preserve for wintertime or for, you know, famines. Um, so, and it apparently makes everything taste better, is what they said.
0: A little more piquant. Um, so you know different regions use dairy differently in their diet um in in places where it the the food tends to be quite spicy or highly flavored for example dairy is kind of like it's the, it's the counterbalance it's the cooling thing and and in, in in you know modern europe where the food is quite bland it's it's the more pungent stinky thing um what how where and how does did uh did dairy fall in the Chinese traditional Chinese diet?
1: Oh, I think it changes over time, but definitely early on, you're getting the more pungent flavors of goat milk and <laughs> it's been turned into yogurt and aged and then mm. preserved. So it, you know, it can be a little musky um, and that's used with definitely with cow's milk um, when that's available. Um, I think it's also a source of sour. I think, you know, acid is really important in ancient diets because, you know, you don't have a lot of sugar, you don't have this, are spices you don't necessarily have a ton of salt so these um preserved yogurts become flavoring agents i mean they've described you know putting that into hot water to drink um, and so i'm thinking of like a very sour yogurt um, kind of beverage also putting it into stews um, into grains to flavor them um, to add also some more protein obviously um, our vocabulary not theirs Um, so I think it's important because, you know, I think, you know, something that people don't realize is that traditional Chinese cooking, you know, thousands of years ago was probably quite sour. And that's a common sort of taste profile around the world, actually. Yeah. Many places before sugar.
0: (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, just having more, more fermented foods in the diet was, was very common before, before refrigeration, because how else were you going to preserve things? Um, so what are some of the, the, the things that, you, I, I guess, what were some of the things that were most surprising to you in your research?
1: Um, well, I mean, sort of the, the valorization of dairy, um, you know, it's not sort of at in the mid sixth century, it's not necessarily in this is uh, a luxury food, but if you go a hundred years, a thousand years or 500 years forward, it becomes sort of a luxury food and. and Chinese use it as sort of a poetic trope to describe things that are very sensual and rich and, you know, pleasurable. Um, so that's something I find very, very surprising is, the, you know, I was under the impression that Chinese hate dairy, you know, growing up. And then I find out that, you know, everything is being compared to milk, you know, or butter. Women, you know, great food, the texture of pastry, meat, um, the fragrance of milk. I, find, I found that all surprising. Um, so that was probably one of the biggest surprises.
0: That that all maps very closely to a lot of things, like in um, the way that milk is referred to in uh, Mongolian culture. But in Mongolian culture, it also has kind of a, a spiritual overlay. Does that also exist in in ancient Chinese culture?
1: Um, yes, I mean, there's there's also I think association with Buddhism that you know becomes a quite important. You know in the sort of first half of the first millennium ad um a lot of uh, you know cow's milk is associated with you know enlightenment right the, one of the things about the buddha is that you know, he tries to reach nirvana and you know he fasts or he's too focused on his meditation and then he's exhaust himself and then he meets a woman who you know puts together the milk of a hundred cows and boils down this extremely rich you know milk kanji which i assume is pretty sweet too um given that much milk <laughs> and then he drinks it, right? So you have depictions of that in like sort of Buddhist monastic art in China. Um, and so monastic food actually um, emphasizes butter and dairy. Um, what One of the interesting things is is that um, you know, there's depictions of how to get to Nirvana. That's often sort of analogized to the, the process of making ghee from raw milk actually so there's that spiritual overlay but it's very specific to this buddhist tradition
0: interesting um so it sounds like just about any kind of animal that one might might use for milk got used for milk is that is that the case
1: yeah i mean some more than others right i mean i mean there are medical formulas that suggest using the milk of pigs to treat alcohol interesting okay um yeah so it's not, I think, very practical to milk a pig. I, there's apparently many, many teats and they're not very large. Um, for example, sometimes there are references to milk of dogs. Again, I don't see that as particularly sort of useful, um, but large, slow moving sort of animals like cows, yaks. Various kinds of buffaloes, um, you know, the ones that have sort of lower yields tend to have richer milk. Those are kind of privileged. I think, Uh, sheep, donkey, donkey milk is still popular in China. Um, kind of a luxury food now or health food, um, camels, you know, for sure. Um, I mean, a wider range of animals than I'm used to seeing at the American grocery store.
0: Um, so you have been doing firsthand, uh, observation and experiments i know with some with some of the, the 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 things you've tried what can you tell us a little bit about that
1: yeah i mean i tried to make a sort of like a it's it's you know sort of similar to mozzarella and it's one of those cheeses that you stretch you know um and it was a sort of an ancient formula you, you actually see it's an ancient recipe you see it actually in novels um, like the jinping mei which is sort of china's most famous sort of pornographic novel or descriptions of various dairy products being consumed after um, things are done um, <laughs> in, in private spaces. Um, but, you know, the, one of the things is this like this sort of mozzarella-like cheese, which is stretched, and it's made without rennet. You um, take raw milk, and you have to first make sort of a soft curd, like similar to cottage cheese or paneer, um, but at a low te- lower temperature than you normally would with paneer. Um, and then after that, you immediately immerse it in hot scalding water and the thing starts to stretch like a noodle um so i did that one that was one of my favorite sort of experiments in part because i tried it at least 10 different times with you know pasteurized milk in michigan um, um and then i went to california for a trip um to give a talk and i know that's one of two states where you can get raw milk at the grocery store so i went shopping and after 10 unsuccessful sort of rounds of this form, this recipe, I was really frustrated, but I, I had a feeling that the raw milk would do the trick. And so I got my raw milk and, you know, I opened it up and it smelled like it came out of an animal, like <laughs> much gamier than the milk I'm used to drinking. Um, and, you know, it was, it worked. I mean, I, I had a cheese within like three minutes. It was amazing.
0: Yeah, stretched stretched curd cheeses like mozzarella are not not for the faint of heart um, under any circumstances. That people often say, "Oh, well, that's a beginner cheese." It's not a beginner cheese. I'm right. I'm here to say. um, Oh, this this
1: one was so easy. I've never done this one. is remarkably easy. All you need is vinegar and hot water, (laughs) and I got it right on the first run. I mean, I was I was impressed. Um, So I would highly recommend that one as a as a beginner beginner cheese.
0: All right, fair enough. so, are there are there things like uh, yogurts, dried curds? You you talked about dried yogurt. It would, I mean, I, and I remember um, in the mid '90s in Beijing, there were they, they would sell the little you know suanyonai, right? The, the drinking. I know it's yogurt. the best yogurt
1: in the world. It's the <laughs> best yogurt. It's the best yogurt in the world. Um, I've never gotten over that. Um, and I think they had it in Nanjing actually probably in in the '80s. I've he- i I've, he- I've heard from friends. Um, yeah, yogurt is you know it has been and i'm not i've been trying to figure out how far back that particular yogurt goes back in chinese history i mean yogurt's been around you know in some form for the last 2,000 years but whether there's a consistent tradition is something that i've been trying to figure out um i suspect it is because you know yogurt wasn't a very popular food in the early 20th century in the anglo-american world um so i doubt it came from you know those guys, yeah. um, uh, and it is, but it's it's hard to know. I mean, the documentary trail is a little bit, it's a little, it's been a little bit hard to trace. Um, there are other things that are easier to trace, like soft curds that are made with renins, um, so enzyme activated curd, uh, which you know are very interesting. So one, there's two kinds. One one is used as a sort of an old ginger, like this is very famous Jiang like ginger hits the the, the milk and it's basically you have this young ginger old ginger sorry you get the juice out then you heat up the milk you put it in gently and then it turns into a soft curd for gingery taste um traditionally made with buffalo milk um still something you can find Sounds fantastic in hong kong or in actually mainland china where you can still you can still get it with the swamp buffalo milk um, and then there's this palace Kurd, which has become very popular in China in, in a variety of cities now. Um, it's actually a reconstructed tradition, which I find really interesting. Um, so if you go to Beijing, there's these different houses that claim to be sixth generation, like Kurd masters who come from the palace, you know, always beware, right? <laughs> um, often, you know, some of the families were Chinese Muslims. Um, so Chinese speaking, Chinese looking people who are, you know, muslim descendants of you know most likely converts or people that sort of came to china during the mongol era um and what they do in these beijing sort of shops is they heat up milk usually or bake it with um sort of um young chinese rice wine where you remove the rice it's like fermented rice Mm -hmm. so there's an enzyme in it like it's like koji Mm -hmm. um and then that has an enzyme and it activates with a little bit of heat and you get this sort of pretty firm curd um firmer than um like what we call um tofu pudding mm-hmm. or silken tofu stronger than that okay um has a wonderful like sort of slightly alcoholic flavor to it um like think sake yeah yeah yeah. Okay. like sweet sake um and that's i think very very popular now because it's considered a palace cheese that's a translation um it's actually kind of, and they were like, well, the Manchu's you were know, foreign conquerors of China and they brought it to, to China, but it's actually not, it's an older, it's an older product. Um, I've been able to trace it back into the main, um, it actually was quite popular in China, especially in the summer. Um, so it's a very nice product. I would highly recommend anybody can get their hands on this sort of koji, like this fermented rice. You make it at home in 20 minutes.
0: Interesting. Um, so it sounds like, um, all the coagulation or, or coagulants, um, are plant-based. Is that, is that right?
1: So far as I know, okay. um, <laughs> I have been looking for rennet. I haven't yet found rennet. Um, I found renin's, you know, mm-hmm. enzyme activated things. I found things that are really weird. Like the, the, the stuff that you, um, they sort of, um, uh, what is it called? Uh, It's used in tofu making with the salt water residue. Um, I think we call it um, nigari.
0: Mm -hmm. This is how I I, I first came across your work was when you were asking about how nigari worked. And I still haven't worked it out because it's so very different chemically um, from how we, how we do things (laughs) in Western (laughs) cheese making.
1: Well, it's not, it's not enzyme. It's not acid and it's not rennet. Right. So I'm like, or, or it's not, and it's not, it's not, you know, it's, it's not a culture. So I'm like, where does it fall on the spectrum? Or is it a new thing?
0: Because people use it for, for, for making tofu. Um so it's obviously got some sort of coagulant in it. Um I think it has something to do with the um exchange with magnesium ions, but I haven't I haven't like sat down and actually like drawn out what that would look like. Um <laughs> So cool. So it's, so, it, I mean, I remember again, you know, when I was living there in the nineties that, that, you know, Suanyu and I was like kind of the beginning and the end of dairy of in, in China and people were just like, yeah, just like your mom said, like, that's, that's a foreign thing. Um, but now, um, you know, China's the third largest dairy producer in the world after India and the U.S. And so what are they using all that dairy for?
1: Yogurt, milk, bubble tea. Bubble tea. Um, there's some cheese, a lot of, also I'm, and this is something that I've thought about, which is that, you know, it's gone from being a very sour food to kind of almost a sweet food, mm. not unlike the U.S. Like, you know, our yogurt is pudding. Oh, it's disgusting. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I like <laughs> sugar like any other person who's earned their pre-diabetic, you know, <laughs> card, but um, but ice cream, right? Americans have ice cream. They don't drink as much liquid milk, but they eat a lot of ice cream. <laughs> Mm. Right. I mean, there's, we still eat cheese and that probably is one of the reasons why our numbers are higher um, and, and cheese hasn't yet caught on, you know, in the Chinese diet in the same extent. Um, mm. But there are traditional cheeses like there's the paneer like cheeses, um, which used to be very common um, and are still, you know, a thing in southwest China.
0: You know, you mentioned before when you were talking about the um, the stretch cheese that that was also something that was used in Southwest China. Is that is it is it the case that um, using dairy kind of just never really died out there?
1: Yeah, um, and there was I read a you know a newspaper sort of article from the nineteen twenties or thirties, and they were describing the fact that yeah they have lots of green hills where the cow the goats can graze. Um, so I think you know a part of it is like you know traditionally. Grazing happened in the hills, um, and you know some mountains, um, and um, the sort of lowlands were reserved for agriculture. Um, Now, what I think happened with dairy in the southeast, which used to have a fair amount of it, um, was that you know the hills got taken up with growing sort of crops like tobacco and um, sweet potatoes and peanuts and things that you know the poor, which you know is always sort of an issue. Um, in traditional China, um, we're using the hills to grow that stuff. And so I think, you know, largely, you know, animal sort of has animal husbandry really sort of started to die in late imperial China. You know, often if if there is a cow in a village, it was shared between families. And if you work a cow to death, you know, there's, she's not going to lactate.
0: Yeah. So it sounds like it sounds like um dairy was kind of all over the place. Were there regional specialties that you've you've found or is it just everybody was just kind of doing whatever they got, where whatever they had, they just turned into stuff.
1: If they had it, yeah. Um there's I mean, even in the Song Dynasty, let's say 9th to 13th century, there's, there, are ref, there are references to area that are dairy-free and uh, areas that people are going where there's no dairy and there's whining about it. There are also letters about places where you can get a lot of good cheese. You know, I mean, it's quite interesting. Um, I mean, so, you know, the this Northwest was considered like, you know, sort of the best place uh, for butters or ghee, um, clarified butters in the um, Tang and Song Dynasties. So um, Song Dynasty, you know, ends but um the southeast the shanghai area actually is a big sort of um dairy producing center in late imperial china um so in the sort of 13th 14th 15th century they they get a lot of people from the north who come after an invasion and kind of relocate to the south and then they try to recreate the dairy culture of the north um they even bring some of the animals that they're using like sheep Um, And they try to raise sheep in the sweltering southeast, which is amazing. And that breed still lives on to this day, which is amazing to me. Um, So that area becomes famous initially for its rich butters um, and then later becomes famous for its soft cheeses. Very cool. Um, and then there's this area not too far from Hong Kong, which is famous for its, like, um, curd, soft curds. It's famous for its, like, salted cheeses. They have a brine cheese um, that's made like paneer but then sliced. And you know, they put they have it for breakfast with the um, rice porridge. Um, so, you know, there still are spots, you know. Um, and, yeah, like, in China, often, like, you know, a spot will become famous for a product. Right.
0: Um, anything other just, you you just like some weird factoid that you just ha- have been dying to share with people?
1: Um, I, I don't, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, I think that there being dairy in China is, is my weird. Factoid yeah, I, this is true. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I don't want to make a plug for raw milk. That's way too political <laughs> for me. Um, and, and I know that there's, there's, there's always some headline or some Twitter feed that I can't I can't look at it anymore, but I do think that, you know, if you want to sort of like make the stretch cheese, which I think is simple. Um, I, I put out a recipe actually, um, you know, that you can do at home if, as long as you can get access to raw milk. Um, it's, I think it's not, it, it's could be a five to 10 minute project.
0: So if people want to find your recipe, your blog, uh, find you on social media, where should they go?
1: Um well I'm transitioning to Instagram. Um my Instagram handle is uh, D O N G underscore M U D A. Or you could find me at Chinesefoodhistory dot org. All
0: right, so um Dongmuda at on Instagram and Chinese dot org.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's yeah. I've departed from Twitter.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You and many others. All right, well, thank you again for for joining us.
1: Well, thank you for having me.
0: Next time on the Curdverse, we'll continue exploring cheese in a Chinese context, this time with an interview with artisan cheese maker, Isabella Chen of Taiwan. Isabella focuses on Italian-style stretched curd cheeses, but, but our conversation goes far beyond that. So join me again next time as we once again enter the Curdverse.